Father, thanks for this word that you speak to us. Uh, thank you that we know you as the eternal God who rules over all things, uh, who reveals uh, what is to us. Uh, please do shape the way we think about what is uh, by your word that uh, we might live uh, with faith and confidence in this word that you speak. In the Lord Jesus, amen. Okay, so this chapter, uh, Daniel chapter 11, includes lots of prediction. Uh, It's prediction. It's history told in advance. It's very accurate history told in advance. We see that with the benefit of hindsight. But why? Why did God tell us? How did it help the first readers when it's all this history lay ahead of them? How did it help the readers who lived through the period that Daniel speaks about? How does it help us? It's about more than showing us that God is able to say what will happen before it happens. So why did God tell it? Well, we'll come back to think about implications. Uh, but first, let's just think about where we're at. Uh, remember chapters 10, 11, and 12 are one long final vision. The three chapters are three big sections. Chapter 10 shows us the invisible spiritual conflict. We looked at that last week. Chapter 11, uh, God's rule through history. Chapter 12 looks forward to the end of history and shows us God's rule in the end. The invisible spiritual conflict we saw in chapter 10 includes Satan attempting to oppose God's plan and stop God's word. It sets us up to read chapter 11 with confidence in the words that the magnificent angel spoke to Daniel. Now, today is tomorrow's history. This year is next year's history. Uh, We read all of this chapter as history. Almost all. (laughs) Uh, But the first readers read it as prediction. Uh, generations of readers read it as prediction of what they were experiencing. Some of it is very precise prediction of the time they lived through. There are nearly four centuries of that precise prediction, uh, then a pattern prediction of the rest of human history. The four centuries overlap with what we heard about Persia and Greece, and including Alexander the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes uh, back in chapter 8. But let's look at what's said here. Verse 2 speeds through two centuries of history. It says there are three more kings, then a final king of Persia who has fantastic wealth. That last king provokes Greece by attacking him. Then verse 3, the mighty king of Greece didn't just defend, he attacked and defeated the mighty Persian Empire. We know him as Alexander the Great, that king. Uh, He ruled a vast empire and he ruled it briefly. Uh, Just from when he conquered to when he died, just eight years. Verse 4 predicted, As soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards four winds of heaven. Verse 4. It was split four ways and not to his relatives as verse 4 says. Uh, Four of his generals uh, took parts of his kingdom. And the two strongest uh, were Ptolemy and Seleucus. Uh, Verses 5 to 20 focus on them, the the kings who ruled their kingdoms after them. 
They describe 148 years of conflict between north and south. Daniel saw the vision in Babylon, but north and south are north and south of Israel. We can see that in the text. And yep, there's a map which, uh, you can see that in the text in verse 7. Uh, the king of the south enters the fortress of the king of the north. Verse 8, he carries off uh, to Egypt their gods down the south. Uh, verse 16, the king of the north stands in the glorious land. Uh, so you see on the map, the, the green area is the northern uh, Seleucid kingdom. The orange area in the south, uh, the uh, Ptolemaic kingdom. Uh, actually, those areas kept changing, just the nature of the time, and that, that border between them kept moving up and down as they attacked each other. Incursions north and south meant moving up and down through Israel. In their minds, Israel was pretty irrelevant other than as a staging point for advancing north and south. But Israel is at the center of this vision. Israel is at the center of God's concern. I'm not going to walk through the detail of all those movements. Uh, Commentaries or study Bibles will give you uh, something of a breakdown if you'd like to chase it through. Enough to say the details described match very well what happened in history. We can look back and say this prediction is what happened in history. Early readers um, got to say this prediction is what we're experiencing in history. The pace slows in verses 21 to 35. Uh, verses 2 to 3 covered 200 years. Uh, verses uh, 4 to 20, another 150 years. Verses 21 to 35, about 11 years. The pace slows to show us a single king of the north. Verse 21 calls him a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. And it's like the, the, the writer's being careful not to call him king because the only way he's mentioned king is when he's at the negotiating table with another king in verse 27. He's contemptible. He's despised. This predicted, despised, and contemptible person is Antiochus Epiphanes, who I mentioned when we looked at chapter 8. Uh, a northern ruler, he attacks the south, And it fits what we know from history. And so does his frustrated attack on the Israelites. He didn't just pass through Israel on the way to go south and return north. He made them the target of his frustrated ego when he was defeated in the south. These verses give us a precise prediction of what happened in history. Again, commentary study Bibles will help you draw the lines between them if that's what you would like to chase through. three and a half centuries and this time leading into it. The exact connection uh, breaks actually in verse 36 to 39 though. Uh, It doesn't fit history quite as well. Verses 40 to 45, the connection with history pretty much breaks. It's less, not such a good description uh, of what Antiochus Epiphanes was like. The details don't connect. So why is that? Why are the details less precise? Some people say because it's not actually prediction. They suspect uh, part of this part of Daniel was written uh, after all those things had happened. 
They think verses 1 to 35 fits too well to be prediction. They think that it must be history written as if it is prediction. They think verse, um, so the, the, the writer had actually experienced the things written in verses 1 to 35 or sorry, not experienced, it's 350 years, um, had actually <laughs> knew that as history, wrote it as if it's prediction, and then had a guess at what would happen after that, verses 36 and onwards. And a not very successful attempt. I think this chapter was put in Daniel's mouth as an encouragement in the midst of the terrible persecution under Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, I don't think they're right. Let me tell you three reasons why I don't think they're right. First, because I don't see God's people being impressed and encouraged by a prophecy that's basically a fraud. There'd be no point in writing it. And there would be every reason to drop it as soon as it started to be obviously not true. Uh, Second reason, uh, uh, it's because the God Daniel talks about, the God we encounter in the rest of the scriptures, is a God who has no difficulty in saying what will happen and when it will happen in precise detail. The third reason to accept it, perhaps the biggest reason, um, is because this book was clearly part of the Old Testament that Jesus accepted. Uh, as we read the Gospels, his attitude to the Old Testament is clear. He believed what he taught, what it taught, he, he trusted what it promised, he obeyed what it commanded. He did that because he was crystal clear that what it says, God says. Part of trusting him is trusting this and all of the Old Testament. So what is going on with these details not fitting as tightly? I think these last ten verses of the chapter are a caricature of Antiochus Epiphanes. They exaggerate, they overemphasize uh, aspects of what he was like. They're about him, but they're not just about him. They describe, exaggerate, overemphasize his anti-God attitude, which is fulfilled in him, as well as in all the anti-God rulers through centuries between him and the end of time. And the outline I call it pattern prediction. Uh, that makes sense. Yes, it's, it's, it's a, Antiochus is a pattern for lots and lots and lots and lots of rulers coming after him. It's, a caric- it's caricaturing what Antiochus was like, looking back at what's already been said and saying it again um, with exaggeration and uh, an emphasis, but also describing what every anti-God and anti-Christ ruler has been like in decade after decade and century after century since then. Since Daniel wrote, and until the end, When Christ returns, Daniel's readers, including us, have lived through this pattern. Yeah? So why did God say this through Daniel? Why did God speak this chapter? Uh, How did it help the people then? How does it help us now? Well, first it it teaches us uh, to expect victors to be defeated. Uh, Some victors hold on to the victories for a long time, some not so long. But all of them, for all of them, defeat will come. Persia, Greece, kings of south, kings of north, they rise, they do great deeds, they enjoy their victory, maybe even get to celebrate and boast in it. 
but sooner or later they are defeated. Uh, the long list of verses on the on the outlines uh, are where the angel tells Daniel uh, things will go badly for what had been until then a victorious king. Uh, every victor is eventually defeated. Uh, history and experience uh, and prophecy uh, teach that empires rise and fall. The defeated were once the victors, and the new victors will sooner or later become the defeated. However high they rise, they will come to their end with none to help them. This chapter teaches us to expect victors to be defeated. The second thing I'd like to highlight is that it teaches us to expect God's people to be victims of defeat and frustration. In verses 16 and 22, God's people are the victims of the victors. That they're caught in the push and pull of north and south, winning territory from one another. They suffer at the hands of the new victor. Then, and with Antiochus Epiphanes, it's a different spin. God's people suffer on the hands of the defeated and frustrated overlord. Verse 30, Antiochus is attacking the ships of Kittim. Uh, that's the Roman fleet uh, sent to help the Egyptian forces in terms of history. But attacked and afraid, Antiochus withdraws back towards the north. He withdraws, but he still holds power in the glorious land and over God's precious people. They experience the fury of his frustration. So halfway verse th- verse through verse 30, God predicted Antiochus would turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Uh, The first century historian Josephus describes how Antiochus attacked Jerusalem on the Sabbath when he knew that most of the Jews would not fight back. He outlawed Sabbath and sacrifices and Old Testament festivals and circumcision. He ordered Old Testament scrolls to be destroyed. Uh, He erected a statue of Zeus in the temple. He sacrificed pigs to Zeus in God's temple. That was the abomination that made desolate in his time. But it was not the last. The caricature description builds the expectation that for as long as time lasts, there will be anti-God and anti-Christ rulers who turn their frustration on God's people. Third thing I'd like to highlight is that this chapter teaches us to recognize God's control of everything. We're used to seeing this in Daniel. Uh, the The things that happen here are horrendous. Rulers oppose God, they harm people. Antiochus is a contemptible and despised person. Most significantly, he's contemptible and despised by God. He opposes God's word. He opposes God's people. But he cannot frustrate God's plan. The angel described to Daniel has, sorry, the angel described to Daniel what is already written in the book of Christ. God determines what happens and when it happens. Uh, A few verses, we see that verse. Uh, Verse 24, the king's activity is only for a time. Verse 27, plots are hatched, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. 
Verse 29, at the time appointed, events unfold. Verse 35, God's people are purified until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Verse 36, the king prospers against the God of gods till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. Verse 40, at the time of the end, the conflict continues. All these things happen on schedule. Uh, And seeing them happen as planned reminds us who sets the schedule. The living and true, loving and holy God. Daniel and his first readers had seen uh, God return his people to Jerusalem just as he promised he would. And generations of Daniel's readers saw God's plan unfolding as the things written about in this chapter happened. God in control of everything. But he isn't just God. He's our God. The goodness of God being in control is that we are his people and he is our God. I mentioned earlier that the kings of the north and kings of south uh, with God's precious people in the center. That's one of the ways this passage assures us that God's focus and concern is for his people. God is in control of the big picture events of history and of the details of history. He controls them all with the focus on his people. This vision helps us to expect victors to be defeated, to expect God's people to be victims of defeat and frustration, and at the same time, to recognize our God's control of everything. The fourth implication I'd like to highlight brings some of those threads together. This vision teaches us to let what God reveals define folly and wisdom. In verse 30, the contemptible person is frustrated by defeat and takes out his frustration on the Holy Covenant. The next few verses show us how, show us the worst and best responses of God's covenant people. Verse 32, the faithless let go of God and line up with their attacker. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action, and the wise among the people shall make many understand. Verse 32, 33, the the wise, it sounds awesome. They sound rock solid. They sound firm. But read on. Read on in verse 33. For some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that They may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. The wise stumble when they die by sword and flame, when they're taken by captivity and plunder. Why why is what they do, why is what they do, which means that they wind up like that, Why is it wise? Thinking back through uh, the book of Daniel, uh, the earlier chapters, we'd expect wisdom and standing firm and taking action to be followed by deliverance. That's what Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego experienced. 
They stood firm against the anti-God rulers of their time and God delivered them out of the fiery furnace, out of the lion's den. It's obvious that they were wise to refuse their oppressive anti-God kings. It's not so obvious when standing firm results in being victims of sword, flame, captivity and plunder. So why? Why is it wise to stand firm against anti-God rulers when it can end in suffering or death? Well, the first part of the answer is in this chapter, verse 45. The anti-God ruler shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, between the Mediterranean and and Jerusalem. The ruler rules from those tents, and his rule includes Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the glorious holy mountain. They are in his hands. Yet he shall come to an end with none to help him. And when his, end, when his end comes, the folly of those who pursue the covenant to line up with him will be clear. It's foolish to go all in with an anti-God ruler who is now victorious but will be defeated. It's wise to refuse to go all in with an anti-God ruler who is now victorious but will be defeated. God's word enables us to say it. God's word enables God's people who are victims of defeat and frustration to see it, to know, to see it and to know that our God, our God, controls everything. It's wise to stand firm against anti-God rulers when it can end in suffering and death because it honors the living and true, loving and holy God who will not be defeated. It honors God who rules now and always. That's one aspect of why it's wise. The other aspect? Well, because he will deliver his faithful people. He will deliver his faithful people, including those who suffer, even including those who die under oppression of the anti-God. Glance in the next chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine with the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. In the, res- in the resurrection, when God raises everyone, it will be obvious who is foolish and who is wise. And because God reveals now what will happen then, it's obvious what is foolish and what is wise now. We say it as we trust his word. There are many ways in which living by God's word makes life better and easier. It reveals how to live with the grain of reality with the grain of reality of what we're like, uh, what the people around us are like, what the world that God's placed us in like uh, is like. He really is our best guide for how to live as people he made in the world he made. He tells us what's better and best. There are many ways that living by God's word makes life better and easier. But we suffer too, and this chapter's about that. 
We suffer too and sometimes unjustly. We can expect the direct or ripple effects of the anti-God and anti-Christ rulers and leaders to impact us. It can seem foolish to press on. It can seem foolish, but it is wise to press on, to hold firmly to God, to trust, to hold firmly to God's trustworthy word. We can look with joy through suffering to what lies ahead. We, we can experience the comfort of letting uh, what God reveals to us define what's wise and what's foolish. We can experience the comfort of knowing our God controls everything and He is able to care for His people through the worst of suffering and opposition. Reading those earlier chapters of Daniel, it's easy uh, to see what was wise. Now, there are lots of times when God does that. Um, lots of times when God does that in our experience, lots of God, times when God did that in the Old Testament. The writer to the Hebrews uh, tells some of them in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, after he's told a bunch of them, uh, chapter 11, verse 32, he says, And what more shall we say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. There are times when they and we say the wisdom of going all in with God and trusting his word. And we say it in this life. But not always. Sometimes it is not seen in this life. Hebrews continues, Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Seeing him... We can look with joy through suffering to what lies ahead. We can experience the comfort of letting what God reveals define for us what is wise and foolish. We can experience the comfort of knowing our God controls everything and he is able to care for us through the worst of suffering and opposition. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your reliable word. Thank you that you do reveal to us things that we would not know apart from you speaking them. 
Father, we thank you that uh, we look back uh, not only to your faithful people through generations who have heard and trusted your word, uh, but to your faithful son who heard and trusted your word, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at your right hand. Father, thank you for the assurance that seeing him brings. Thank you for the assurance that this chapter brings. Uh, that you are the God who is in control of all things. You're the God who's in control even as um, anti-God and anti-Christ, rulers and leaders, um, cause directly and indirectly pain and suffering um, and injustice uh, for your people. Father, please uh, strengthen us in our walk in our lives to uh, trust you in the situations and circumstances we face. I pray that they ask that this word uh, would uh, cause us to think of you, to think of your your faithful people through generations, that, that great cloud of witnesses uh, of your son, uh, the one faithful to death and now risen already. Um, please help us to set the joy before us of the resurrection day when Uh, We'll uh, be raised with all your people from among all the nations. And Father, we do particularly pray for uh, brothers and sisters who are now caught up in uh, the consequences of of leaders fighting over land uh, in Russia and Eurasia and the ways that that echoes out into other areas. Father, please do uh, give give confidence uh, to your, your people uh, in Russia and Eurasia and throughout the region. Uh, confidence in you as their sovereign God who is uh, in control of all things. Uh, Father, we, we ask that you will order things uh, for their good. Uh, Father, for that you would bring peace. Uh, you bring an end to the hostilities. Uh, Father, that you'd uh, um, is the burden of the knock-on effects of um, of a war uh, on on your people, and Father, we ask especially that you would act for their good in strengthening them by your Spirit through your Word, that they would um, look with joy uh, beyond their suffering. Uh, to the day of deliverance, that they'd know the comfort of knowing you as their God who is caring for them through this time. Father, please do give believers um, wisdom and care um, in caring for one another. Please give pastors uh, wisdom in helping uh, your people wrestle with all the many issues and concerns that will be coming up as they face, uh, continue, continue after so long to be facing uh, the yeah, the current circumstances. And Father, please do strengthen believers uh, to be ready to give an answer and to explain the hope that they have, that the, the, why they have a, a joy that looks beyond this life. And we ask that even through these horrendous um, uh, these horrendous uh, times, 
that would be the glorious thing of uh, seeing more and more men, women, and children who currently are without hope and without Christ uh, hearing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and coming to faith and repentance and being brought into your family. Uh, we long we long to hear news of you saving uh, more uh, the men, women, and children of Eurasia, and that they would be among those who uh, will be raised on the last day, uh, raised um, as your glorious children, uh, to the praise and glory of your Son. That's in him we pray. Amen.